Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at the Bulwark, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, and Damon Linger of The Week. Sitting in for Linda Chavez this week is The Bulwark's publisher, Sarah Longwell, and our special guest is Tom Nichols, professor at the U.S. Naval War College and author most recently of Our Own Worst Enemy. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, um, I don't know how to describe this, but it, it has the feel, doesn't it, of those, um, those crisis moments when we used to have divided government and it was a question whether we would uh, whether we would default on our national debt, whether we would get a budget through, whether there would be a fiscal cliff, et cetera. Um, we've got that feeling right now with a lot of plates spinning in the air, and yet the Democrats are in control of everything. So, um, so Tom Nichols, I'm going to go to you first. You know, when you... Um, when you read people on the left, they're saying, how is it possible that those centrists, those selfish, awful centrists could be willing to blow up Joe Biden's agenda for their own selfish purposes? And when you read the centrists, they say, how could these progressives be willing to take us to the brink and have Joe Biden be unsuccessful for the sake of their pie in the sky, uh, $40 trillion, I exaggerate slightly, um, bill? <laughs> Well, I think the problem between the centrists and the progressive wing is that they don't agree on the one thing that all of us should be agreeing on, and which is why I think all of us here are part of a, the same coalition these days, which is that we are in an existential crisis of democracy. And instead, they're acting like it's business as usual, and they have fallen into their usual kind of you know firing squad, circular firing squad behavior, because that's what they know best. And... It, it really suggests that they have not internalized the near-death experience of the past four uh, years. And it's it, it's uh, tragic. It's I, I would say it's infuriating, but it's exasperating is maybe a better um, word for it. Because um, if, the, if we end up with unified Republican government again, the infrastructure bill, the fights over the infrastructure bill are going to seem like, um, you know, pretty small beer by comparison uh, a year or two from now. And I just think they haven't, I think there's something, if the Republicans have become an authoritarian movement, the Democrats are still stuck in being a fundamentally unserious party in many ways. And we're seeing that now. Um, Sarah, you, you made a point elsewhere, which I'd like you to elaborate on. And it's this, um, that uh, the Democrats have have bargained really everything, and one could even suggest they they're at the moment they're sort of risking the health of our democracy on the proposition that they can win back working class white voters with big payouts. Um, and and you are skeptical about that. And and let me throw one fact in, uh, which Damon mentioned in his one of his pieces this week, namely that. You know, the um, the Democrats passed a huge, like more than a trillion dollar um, uh, COVID relief bill, which gave Americans a lot of cash. And it doesn't seem to have moved the needle very much at all on Biden's uh, pot or the Democrats popularity. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess, in my opinion, I think the Biden administration's um, plan of attack here for winning electoral popularity is exactly uh, the opposite of what it should be, which is that they are throwing lots and lots of money, whether it's in infrastructure, COVID relief, um, you know, child tax credits, uh, they're piling up massive amounts of debt in order to, I think in their minds, materially improve the lives of uh, a lot of these white working class voters that 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 Obama attracted, uh, but then Trump took away that have sort of moved slowly into the MAGA coalition because they are more culturally MAGA. And, uh, and, and I think, and, and those people are gonna give uh, Joe Biden zero credit. Uh, for that spending. In fact, you know, uh, they don't, they don't actually, they sort of don't like the spending. Like I do these focus groups with them all the time and they actually, half the time they're sort of annoyed that the money's going to somebody else uh, or like it's, a, it's an argument over who gets what. And meanwhile, the Biden coalition is really made up of these uh, college educated suburban voters uh, many and, 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 and black voters, many of whom are more moderate, who don't love to see them running up these big bills and would much rather see some of what Joe Biden promised about unity, um, you know, a compassionate uh, way of doing things. You know, they wanted him to be the anti-Trump. And instead, I, look, there's, there's a million ways in which Joe Biden is absolutely nothing like Trump. But there is something strange right now, whether it is the way he pulled out of Afghanistan, uh, just like Trump wanted to do, and with very little forethought, the crisis at the border where they're taking an incredibly hard line um, that I think a lot of these, you know, sort of college-educated suburbanites want, want, they want Joe Biden to say, I'm going to address this like an adult. We're going we're gonna to take the border seriously, but compassionately. Like, I just don't think Biden is playing to the right constituency, and I don't think his policies are setting up the Democrats for political success. Um, so, Damon, I'm going to come to you on the topic of the Republicans. Um, the um, Mitch McConnell, so during the Trump years, uh, you know, when the topic of raising the debt ceiling came up, the Democrats went along with on uh, extensions on it, right? Uh, they didn't, uh, they didn't uh, threatened to uh, hold it up, um, although they have in the past. By the way, even uh, Barack Obama did in the Bush years. Uh, but anyway, so this has been going on for a while, playing games with uh, with the debt ceiling. But um, but look, it, as, as has been stated a number of times, the debt ceiling is not about future spending. It's about past spending that has already taken place, and we merely have to give authority for, for our borrowing a lot of people think we should eliminate this this thing entirely. Um, but here's what I want to get your comment on. So Mitch McConnell has said, well, you Democrats, you're in charge of everything now. So you have to raise the debt ceiling on your own. We Republicans will not vote to help you do it. He, and, then, and then he said this, don't play Russian roulette with the economy. Step up and raise the debt ceiling. <laughs> Yeah, well, this is this is kind of the this is what uh, most Americans who don't much like Washington politics 
this is what they don't like about Washington politics, is this kind of posturing of kind of high-minded, principled uh, gestures that are really very transparently concealing a kind of knife between the ribs of your opponent and trying to gain advantage by seeming to be above the politics that you're actually playing very skillfully. And I mean... This this issue of the debt ceiling, I'm one of the people who think that we should just get rid of this ridiculous performance that we go through. I mean, if we had a totally different political culture where it was actually unusual to run de uh, large deficits uh, and to be increasing the debt, then I guess one could imagine a situation where this would be a reasonable ordeal we have to go through periodically if we go a little bit off course from that preference. But given the fact that our entire politics by both parties by this point involves running very large deficits and running up the debt. It's ridiculous that we sort of continually give ourselves this limit and then are put in a position of having to play chicken over uh, raising it when everyone knows, of course, we're going to raise it in the end anyway. So it's like we've set ourselves up for extremely reckless theater every few months or years, depending on the interval we're talking about. In this particular case, I think... McConnell has a, a relatively strong political hand to play because the Democrats, he's right that they could raise the debt ceiling all by themselves. The problem is that they would have to do it as part of reconciliation. And the Democrats have put themselves on this track with they're using reconciliation to pass this massive $3.5 trillion or trying to pass this $3.5 trillion spending bill that has a gazillion things in it. And at the moment, it doesn't have the debt ceiling in it. So that would mean they'd have to kind of backtrack and add the debt ceiling and do a vote again, I believe. Uh, and then uh, you'd have still have this, uh, I don't know the exact date, it's never entirely sure uh, when the precise date of, on the calendar is going to be that we hit the ceiling, it is coming up. They would then have to pass the whole thing by that date in order to prevent the, the debt ceiling limit from being reached, and they're not sure they can do it. In fact, the whole thing could come crashing down because of all the machinations going around along with Joe Manchin on one side and AOC and the progressives on the other. You got all the factions in both houses. So, yes, technically the Democrats could do it, but the only realistic way they could do it is that if they sort of set aside the whole three point five trillion dollar package and then just set out to use reconciliation on the debt ceiling and maybe a few other much smaller items but the entire party and the presidency joe biden's administration has put all their chips down on a very different path so that's why i say you know mcconnell sort of has them here because Technically speaking, he's right, but in the context of the present political moment, it's a big mess for Democrats to try to, to solve. Now, you're going to go, I believe, to Bill Galston next, and he can feel free to correct me about the intricacies of all of these uh, kind of intra-congressional um, 
negotiations, which uh, I always feel like I'm sort of uh, playing catch up behind him on because he knows this stuff better than I do. So I yield the floor. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I am going to go to Bill Galston. Um, uh, But Bill, first, let me set it up this way. Uh, Yesterday, that was Wednesday, uh, President Biden spent pretty much his entire day uh, Democrats trooped into the Oval Office and out for a variety of meetings, attempting to hammer this out. Um, There is a criticism that you may have seen, namely that uh, Biden himself um, failed to show good leadership here with um, not, you know, sort of leaning on uh, one side or the other to give um, in, in this standoff between the moderates and the progressives. And further, that both Manchin and Cinema uh, deserve some um, criticism because they hold the cards, right? Because they are the two senators, the essential senators, who must uh, vote for the package. Otherwise, you know, it won't pass the Senate. Um, and they are the ones who have objections, but they have not been specific in in putting an alternative forward and saying, okay, so here's my price. Here's what I want. And um, and so wh- what do you make of both of those things and comment on anything that's happened so far <laughs> uh, as you wish? Oh, boy. <laughs> as as the Air Force planners would say, it's a target rich environment yeah. for criticism. Uh, and, you know, nobody has completely clean hands here. Uh, but let me step away from the intricacies. I, you know. I didn't detect any errors in uh, Damon's presentation, so I won't spend any time doing doing that. Uh, First of all, I do expect that that at some point sooner rather than later, uh, the party will reach an internal agreement on these matters because the costs of not doing so you know, in both substance and political standing are, in my judgment, prohibitively high. You know, it would really mean the failure of the Biden administration's entire domestic agenda. And I don't, I don't think that anyone in the last analysis is willing to make that happen. Now, with regard to Sen- uh, Senators Manchin and Cinema, this is a moment of truth for them. Uh, Manchin was advocating, still is advocating, uh, what he calls a strategic pause, which translated into plain English means, let's not act on the reconciliation bill right now. Uh, I don't believe that he's going to be able to maintain that position. So instead, he and I believe cinema, unless they are really willing to bring the whole thing down, uh, are going to have to name a top line number. And they're going to have to do that in the next few days. That top line number will then be the basis for an agreement between the Senate, the House, and the White House. At that point, the progressives reach their moment of truth because they're going to have to decide whether uh, to support a reconciliation bill that is substantially smaller than a bill that they already regard as on the verge of being too small 
or bring down the Biden agenda. <laughs> uh, if they if if they decide that they're going to have to accept something in the neighborhood, let us say, of $1.5 to $2 trillion, and then make some really tough choices within that framework, at that point, it will be the moderate's moment of truth, uh, because I suspect that some of them would not be disappointed to see the reconciliation bill go away entirely. Uh, but I don't think they're going to get that luxury. And House, House moderate Democrats from high tax jurisdictions are going to have to decide whether they can accept fixes for uh, on the state and local tax uh, uh, deduction, which are substantially lower than what some of their constituents are demanding. And believe me, I've heard some of these constituents and they are demanding it insistently. And when you see that we're talking about upwards of $100 billion a year, you can see why uh, they're banging the table so hard. Uh, so all of these things are in play, but to repeat, uh, I think that the president, the majority leader, and the speaker of the House uh, are going to have to bring their troops to the table uh, with the intention of making a deal sometime in the next few days. And so be prepared for some late nights in the Oval Office. Okay, Tom, um, while the Democrats are fighting over how much to spend, um, the and the Iron Dome, that was a weird thing. Did you see, they, they did just yeah. now vote to restore funding for the Iron Dome, but that was a very peculiar thing that happened the other day. Anyway, um, let's, uh, let's look, though, at what is happening on the other side of the aisle, uh, because the Republican Party, as we all know, that used to exist is gone. And instead, the news on the Republican side this week was that uh, Trump wrote a letter to um, uh, the Secretary of State of Georgia, Brad Raffensperger, asking that he declare Trump the winner of the election in 2020 election in Georgia, um, and uh, it, which is completely, you know, I, you would say, well, that's utterly insane. If we didn't know, if we hadn't lived through the last five years, we would say this person needs professional help. But of course, we know how that goes. All right. And the other big news was that um, we found out about this Eastman letter uh, drafted by John Eastman, uh, a member in good standing of the Federalist Society, former law professor um, and legal advisor to President Trump, who also spoke at the January 6th rally and had laid out a six-point plan for how to steal the election, how to have Mike Pence refuse to accept the Electoral College votes uh, from six states or seven states, and then just declare Trump the winner. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm laughing, and I shouldn't be, um, because it's horrifying. Uh, I wanted to make one quick observation about the, the whole budget dust-up. You know, the part of the problem is that with districts becoming bluer and redder, there might be a median voter, but there's not a median district. And what everybody's finding in this is that um, the presidency is the last place that's elected by a kind of purple, you know, median voter. And um, and pre and people who run, um, who don't understand that, lose. I mean, 
you know, Clinton, Hillary Clinton ran as though she were running for governor of California and, and lost, even though she won in California. And Trump at the end ran like he was going to be, you know, the most conservative senator from Idaho um, and, and lost. And so, you know, in a way, there's just this kind of tone deafness in all of these arguments now that puts that that I think is structurally always going to put any kind of centrist president um, in the lurch. The, the thing about the Republican Party, it, there's a couple of things. First, it shows the depth of the cynicism of the Republican leadership. And I've, I've, I know I've, you know, hammered this point before, but what it really shows is that they will say and do anything if they don't have to go home and live among their own voters. Um, and if they get to stay in Washington and keep their voters far away from them, um, that's what they'll do. And, you know, I think George Will, who has made this point a few times is worth repeating here again, that we have a historically unprecedented situation in which we, a major American party dislikes and is terrified of its own voters um, because they you can't really. And I think Sarah's point about focus groups, right, where you say we're spending this money to help you to make your life better. Um, they don't care. They, they, they hate that stuff. This is all about culture war and, you know, television and the Internet and, you know, kooky stuff that they believe. And you're not going to persuade them by saying, but we built, you know, we built a youth center in your neighborhood or we fixed the bridges um, in your county. What I think has, you know, Mona, I'm glad you brought up Eastman, because the other thing that's happened is I think that the Trump years revealed that under the guise of respectability, how many crackpots were actually hiding in the Republican Party? Mm -hmm. I mean, in a sense, this has been a remarkable time of clarification and defining and choosing of sides and roles. Uh, I mean, you know, you could have guessed this about Eastman when he was out there saying, well, I don't think Kamala Harris is, you know, f f constitutionally able to be president. Right. I mean, you'd say, well, all right. That's a little eccentric and, you know, right wing, you know, right wing kookery, you know, is always up. But when Chapman is actually getting involved, uh, excuse me, uh, Eastman, he taught at Chapman. And when Eastman is getting involved in saying, here is the plan for overthrowing the constitutional order of the United States, um, you know, the, you start to realize that, like, and I think it's, this is a really uncomfortable realization for for former Republicans like me and some of the other folks here where we look around and say, you know, holy crap, we, we were riding in the same bus with these guys. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and, you know, we thought that they were, well, you know, maybe more conservative than we are, maybe more a little on the edge than we were. But we didn't think that they were, you know, outright uh, kooks and anti-constitutional crackpots. And it's turning out that, you know, if, if the Trump era has done anything, it has really revealed among us who believes in the truly constitutional principles of order and the rule of law and who's just, you know, a kind of crank culture warrior. And I, I mean, it's really disturbing to, to see, but I'm almost glad for it and glad it's happening. But that, that means that the Republican party is beyond salvage and beyond to come back to the issues we've been talking about. You're not going to negotiate with them in good faith. You're not going to negotiate with Mitch McConnell or Kevin McCarthy or, or Elise Stefanik or any of these other people. You're that's, that is, and so the Democrats had best understand that this is now their ball to carry and that without having a unified coalition on their side, this much more um, disciplined and authoritarian coalition is going to eat their lunch. And they, and they just have to accept that um, and get on with it. Um, Sarah, I'm just going to invite you to say whatever you like about that. But I, I just uh, would add that um, 
the uh, the on the infrastructure package, we you know we've learned in the last few days that um, that Kevin McCarthy has said he's going to whip against it, and you know this is an example of I think malpractice on the part of the Democrats because if they had just passed the thing after it passed the Senate with like nineteen uh, Republican votes. Uh, and then it had swiftly passed the House. It would have been a victory for Biden. They could still have had all these other fights about uh, about the social spending. Um, and, uh, and but you know, the now with time gone by, uh, they've lost the momentum, and and they may not get it at all. We'll see. You know, I remember this moment. It was during the second impeachment, and they were having this. They were about to to discuss witnesses, and and. All of a sudden, there's a bunch of wrangling on the floor, and they get enough Republican votes to call witnesses. And I, it was a Saturday. Yep. I was in my living room, and I was like, oh, my gosh, they're going to get witnesses. Romney's going to go for it. This is amazing. And then there's, like, a bunch more action on the floor, and it becomes clear that despite winning the ability to call witnesses, Democrats aren't going to call them. And I start losing my mind on Twitter. Um, <laughs> and I was having such a raw reaction to it. I just couldn't believe the, the malpractice. And John, John Chait tweeted, like, quote tweeted me saying, what's funny is watching all of these, you know, erstwhile disaffected Republicans realize that this is the team they have to start rooting for. <laughs> <laughs> and this is how I have felt all week. Like part of this whole centrist versus progressives, this is all predictable. Like, is it not possible that some of these people talk to each other? Is it not possible that you get them on the same page? Like, you know, Joe Manchin's never going for that three point five trillion. Like these, like the, the fact that none of this stuff uh, could have been. He's also written like three op eds, is, is emphasizing that he's not going to. It's clear. <laughs> it's clear. It's clear where this is going. And honestly, I, look, I've I've never understood the poli the Democrats' politics on infrastructure with this parallel. Um, you know, reconciliation bill, like what is the incentive for Republicans to give Biden a big win if they're just going to turn around and do this massive uh, sort of go you know, work around? Yep. Um, and 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 so it is um, I just I just agree with all of Tom's points, but I want to emphasize one thing um, about the Eastman memo. I was doing a focus group with swing voters uh, right after the day after the Eastman memo came out. And, you know, all of us on Twitter can't believe the Eastman, they wrote it all down. It's right here. There's a six point plan to destroy democracy and steal the election. And uh, I asked the group, have you heard about the Eastman memo? You know, what do you think about it? And I just get, you know, 10 blank stares. And I said, okay, so there's, there's this memo that's come out maybe, and it's from Trump's lawyer. Uh, and it was about how to overturn the election. Nobody, not a thing. And, and so <laughs> right now, the high-level narratives, and high-level narratives are what set public opinion, is all about the Democrats can't get themselves, they can't get themselves together. You know, everybody's, you know, the the failed Afghanistan, failed policies on the border, too much spending, worried about inflation, and over on the other side, where you've got, as Tom points out, total Republicans totally out in the open about trying to steal an election, uh, an active threat to democracy, it's not going to get any oxygen as long, I mean, it should. I actually, I think there is sort of a criminal uh, underappreciation for like why the media is not covering this. I think part of it is that the, this sort of Trump was trying to steal the election is like fait accompli, baked in. Um, but at some point, this, this point that Tom's making, I just, is so right that 
nobody seems aware of the stakes here and and why you do have to be very disciplined about your politics and figure out how to make sure you win elections because i'm sorry they're not there's they don't have 60 uh they can't pass a lot of their stuff the only way they're going to be able to hold off this very dangerous version of the republican party is to win elections and so they got to do the politics well and that brings us to the topic of the border. Um, so um, we now we have seen awful pictures this week of um, uh, Haitian refugees attempting to come across the river, being um, halted by um, you know horseback riding border guards. This has led to a lot of upset in uh, you know Democratic ranks um, and a lot of criticism. Uh, from conservatives. So um, let us let's have a few words on on this. Uh, doesn't this point, Damon, I'll start with you. Doesn't this point to um, a real problem with our, well, of course, our whole system is so completely dysfunctional at this point. But honestly, this is a problem with our law, because our law has allowed people to believe that if they can just get their feet on American soil and ask for asylum, they can get in. And that is the draw. Don't you, don't you think that's really what has to change? Yes, of, of course. I, I mean, our, our uh, immigration laws and everything surrounding this issue is completely messed up. And we see it playing out right here. We saw it playing out during the Trump administration and in the latter years of the Obama uh, administration as well. Although I will uh, uh, steal a line from my colleague Samuel Goldman uh, at The Week, who tweeted, I think, yesterday, uh, having to do with the border and, and the Haitian, uh, the large number of uh, Haitian would-be immigrants uh, there right now suffering, that uh, the immigration, uh, the immigration issues in our country are a mess precisely because are we have several factions in the country that believe and want totally diametrical uh, different positions and they don't want to compromise and each of them has control of a part of the parties and so it, it's it's a little bit like abortion where at least there you have only two options basically you have the extremes of pure pro-life and pure pro-choice whereas in, in uh, immigration you have uh, at least three of like those who want to shut the border entirely, pretty much the more hardline Trumpist types. And then at the other side, you have kind of open border progressives. And then in the middle, you have people who are kind of trying to find a middle position. But the problem is that those first two groups want absolutely the opposite of each other. And they're large. They're large factions of like 30% of the country each. And there's no harmonizing their position. You can't get any position that will lead them to actually end up in this more middle moderate position held by the remaining 35 or 40 percent of the country to have a kind of compromise. Because, again, some want no one coming in and some want pretty much anyone to get in at any time. And those positions are not synthesizable. 
And so what you have on the border is, as you said, Mona, people, especially from Haiti, God, the things that they've been through with earthquakes, uh, assassinations, it's uh, Haiti has a terrible history of suffering. It's had a very bad year, uh, COVID as well. It's it's a total mess. And what you have is, is Haitians are coming to Mexico and coming through the country to try to get in. And they hope that if they set a foot over the border, they can claim asylum and they'll be here permanently and won't we won't be able to deport them and and biden is in effect saying no we're going to deport you anyway which sounds sort of like trumpian in its harshness but i frankly don't know what the alternative is because if he lets them stay that will confirm the story oh see it's true you can do this and then we have an even bigger flood on the border and um, you know, the, the uh, Bill might know the latest polling on this, but I, I've seen it as of a, about a month ago. The polling on on the border for Biden is very weak. It's one of one of his lowest areas, at least prior to the uh, mess ups of the withdrawal from Afghanistan. It was one of the issue areas where he, he polled lowest. And so he knows he's walking a very shaky tightrope right here. And I think he hopes to make it somehow just go away like somehow if i deport these people then word will get out that they can't just come and then they'll stop showing up and this there won't be images of ten thousand people sitting under a bridge on the rio grande uh but you know whether that's a realistic uh a realistic path uh forward i just don't know but it is it is a big a big mess so, um, Bill, I I agree with Damon about the the political um, uh, cross currents here, um, but let me just present this. I mean, I consider myself to be pretty liberal on immigration. I believe in immigration. I think that it's fantastic that we've had a steady stream of people coming to the United States and and being super appreciative of what liberty and and prosperity means. Uh, I was just talking to someone last week who came here as a child from Russia. And so then the Soviet Union um, has never stopped being grateful uh, to the U.S. for taking him in, so on. Um, <clears throat> on the other hand, um, so I'm very pro-immigration. At the same time, I think this, this asylum uh, category has become untenable. That it is it is encouraging people to come who are you know ec mostly economic migrants, and yet they come and they're told they're coached. You know, don't say you're coming for work. Say you fear persecution. The whole thing has gotten out of hand. Why can't there be a, an understanding of that and a, and a, and a reform? Why can't there be reform? <laughs> <laughs> ah, yes. Well, they're turning to public opinion. Uh, this issue is a lot more like gun control than it is about like issues that really polarize the country down the middle. Uh, 15 years of survey research all point in the same direction that there is a consensus in the middle of the country on, on the one hand, you know, a much more generous 
immigration policy with paths to citizenship for various categories of people. And on the other hand, a significant toughening of security at the border. Every single immigration bill that's been on the floor of the Senate since 2007 has had that same basic structure with about 60% of the American people supporting it. Uh, and the extremes have succeeded in killing it off. Uh, the low point for immigration came during the last serious effort to accomplish it. Uh, when, uh, as I've said more than once on this show, the, you know, the, the pro-immigration gang, which at that point included Marco Rubio, uh, worked with Democrats to put together a bill uh, that was supported by every single Democrat and about one-third uh, of the Republican Party in the Senate. Uh, it went over to the House with a head of steam. And then Speaker John Boehner refused to bring it to the floor, although he knew it would pass, because it would only pass with a coalition consisting of the minority of his majority plus the majority of the minority. And he was unwilling to accept the politics of that, even though from the national standpoint, it was exactly what the country wanted. Uh, and that has happened. I've been pretty involved in the immigration issue. That has happened time after time after time. On this issue, the problem is not the electorate. The problem is the elected officials. And we would not be where we are now had it not been for deliberate obstructionism, more by Republicans than Democrats, but to be frank, during the Bush administration, uh, some Democratic senators, including one who became president, were not helpful in realizing this public consensus. I could go on for hours on this subject, Mona. Uh, it is... It is a tragedy. It's a human tragedy, but it's also a political tragedy. And the political tragedy has exacerbated the human tragedy. And here we are. Uh, of course, President Biden cannot simply declare, in effect, open borders. Uh, but we're, we're in a pretty much unprecedented situation where a combination of a health disaster and an economic disaster in the Western Hemisphere linked to that health disaster, you know, has created an army of people who feel that they have nothing left to lose and are willing to risk everything to get to the United States. Uh, we are now in the middle of the biggest uh, spike of apprehensions in in 20 years, 200,000 in each of the past two months. Uh, it is, it's a human crisis and it is a political crisis for the Biden administration, which has had some months to get its house in order on this issue and doesn't even seem to me to have begun to do so. Uh, Tom Nichols, um, what do you think of this idea, my idea, of changing the asylum law? I mean, it would seem at first very cruel. People would say that's that's horrible. How can you say that people can't land on our shores and request asylum? Um, but uh, but wouldn't it 
be at least a step in the right direction in discouraging uh, people who from making a very perilous journey and then from being turned away anyway. Yeah, I, you know, I think part of the problem here is that the existence of Donald Trump has made people choose sides um, that are not natural to them. I mean, I thought I've always thought of myself. I'm the grandson of immigrants, and I think of myself as very pro-immigrant. But I am an immigration or used to be, I guess, an immigration hawk, which is about legal immigration and coming, you know, that priority should be given to people genuinely fleeing persecution and, and so on. And of course, the problem is that to be an immigration hawk kind of puts you on the side of Donald Trump. And then you say, well, I can't be that. So I must be pro-immigration, but I'm not really an open borders person. And I think, you know, the, 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 the kind of foul existence of Donald Trump has scrambled this deck. Um, but I, to go, and I'm sure Bill Galston will correct me on this, but if I remember correctly, one of the first presidents who pulled the bait and switch on, yes, everybody from Haiti should come here. No, I was only kidding. They can't really come here was actually Bill Clinton. Um, we don't have to keep using Trump as the benchmark. This is not a new problem. Bill Clinton, if I recall, one of the first things he backtracked on between his election and his inauguration in 92 was, yeah, I'm going to have to change that thing I said about Haitians, because, of course, every president learns. You can't simply say, you know, the, the words on the Statue of Liberty are beautiful, but you, America cannot be the default setting for everybody who doesn't like where they live. Um, and, you know, Clinton backtracked on that. Mona, I'm actually old enough to still be bitter about the 1986 amnesty that was supposed to be followed by enforcement. Remember, that was the deal, right? We do the amnesty, then we do enforcement. Turns out we, we just did the amnesty part, and then we left the rest kind of, you know, aside. Um, with all that said, it, it would be a wildly bipartisan, you know, this Bill's made this point better than I can. It would be a wildly bipartisan thing to say, we are a pro, we are a nation founded by immigrants. We are pro-immigration. Um, it used to be that the Republicans and the Democrats were competing for the loyalties of immigrants and their children in the American political dream. Um, and the Republicans have given up on that. There is a huge possibility here for the Democrats and for moderate Republicans, the four that are left, <laughs> to, to capture this issue that says you can't just come here because things you know, suck where you are at the moment. You, you, you know, you really do have to claim asylum as in the way we understand persecution and danger. It can't just be because, you know, you just want to come here and work. Although we should welcome people who want to come here and work. That's also a great thing. But to change the law, to clarify this, to say, you can't just touch the shore of the United States and say, Ali, Ali, oxen free. That would be a wildly popular thing. It would be a humane thing. And that's why nobody's going to do it because, um, the and and by the way, I think one thing we need to inject into this conversation is the issue of race. When you say we need to be a nation, a pro-immigration nation, you know the Republicans have really made a lot of hay about saying yes, that means a browner nation, mm -hmm. that means a darker nation, and see the not the, people the dark, from s-hole countries. Right, right, they're right. It's not going to be you know Trump's Norwegians showing up or you know cheerful uh, Irish bartenders. It's going to be these people that scare you, and they have really weaponized that to make immigration uh, synonymous with racial, uh, with racism, and with this kind of white anxiety issue that they play on so well. And I, I'm again, I'm not sure how to get out of that other than to tell the Democrats, get your house in order, you know, get yourselves together on this. You are still the majority. You can pass things, um, but. 
uh, again, I don't, I don't see how they're going to do that when they're afflicted by the extreme wing of their own party uh, on issues like this as well. Yeah, Sarah, I just want to clarify, because it just occurred to me that my discussion of limiting asylum might, might be misinterpreted. So we have two separate tracks for accepting people into this country who are being persecuted. One is the refugee program, which works great. And the other is the asylum program, which does not. So the refugee program, you apply to be a refugee elsewhere. You, you don't have to set foot in this country to be considered a refugee. And we, you know, we coordinate with the United Nations High Commissioner on Refugees and so on and so forth. And we give a lot of support to refugees when they come. Trump cut way back on that, which was disgraceful. But in any case, it's a different system. Although the grounds for, for asking for asylum are very similar to asking for refugee status, the big difference is that that to ask for asylum, you have to set foot in the country. But any comments that you have? Uh, only that, you know, Biden did finally just uh, raise the cap on refugees. Um, you know, generally on immigration, I just, I think the case for immigration is the case for America and why America's great. And, um, you know, I, I think that we've had most of this discussion without talking too much about the fact that like the system we have for allowing people to come into this country legally and become citizens, uh, which is, I think is a net positive and something we should want, uh, is horrible and, and does not make like the re it is so cumbersome and difficult, uh, to do that. People would rather cross the desert and risk death than, you know, take a shot at doing it legally because it takes i think people when i hear this in focus groups all the time where people you know the thing about americans right is that they've never immigrated to america and so they have no idea what the process looks like and so they say you know you should do it the right way and i'll tell you there are years years ago i would have said something very similar um because it is important that we have borders and the rule of law uh but i don't know that people realize that actually it takes like 18 years and it is like an extremely difficult process and a lot of times you have to be you have money or be politically connected in order to to make it happen and so i think um recommitting ourselves and this is why this is why joe biden's in so much trouble on this politically so donald trump if that was his border patrol guys with their lassos you know trying to lasso the haitians at the border he would own that he would love that he would say yeah, this is how I'm being tough on the border. The problem for Joe Biden and the reason his numbers are on this are so low is because it's a total contradiction to the values that he espouses and the way that he talks about immigration. And so he is both losing people on the left who can't believe how harsh he's being on the border, while Republicans are never going to give him credit for being tough on the border. So I don't know why he's trying to appease them. Um, I wish that Joe Biden would articulate a case why we should have a better immigration system because that is it's a it's a testament to America's greatness uh and and who we are like there's a special story to tell there and I I sort of thought that's the Joe Biden we were going to get the guy who was going to be able to harness uh that sort of vision of America and so I'm just finding it so confusing how he's handling this stuff right okay Bill did you have a, a something to add on this or uh just a 15 second point of personal privilege uh, I think if you, you know, if, if when this show airs, if you go back and listen to what I said in response to your question, Mona, I don't believe I even mentioned Donald Trump. All right. This, you know, this for me 
is a problem that is much more longstanding than Trump. And he was able to exploit it precisely because it has been gridlocked and unresolved for so long. All right. Let us uh, look for a few minutes uh, that we have remaining at um, Biden's foreign policy in general. And Sarah, I'm going to turn to you because you've already sort of touched on this. Um, you know, the the Afghanistan exit, the way it was done, you know, without consulting with our allies, um, sort of leaving them in the lurch, um, you know, the the uh, declaration um, that uh, that we were going to be able to fight terror for with over the horizon techniques. And then, of course, we a drone kills an innocent guy and a bunch of children. Um you know the the Australia deal. Th this is looking like, um, first of all, it's looking incompetent, and also it's not looking like the kind of world leadership that Biden promised. Well, this was the. I mean, this was sort of the what Biden was supposed to be was that steady hand. Every he was old, uh, you know, but he was also old school, and he was supposed to be able to come in and calm everybody down and give our allies that sense of, you know, the, the United States is still who you know as a leader in the world and, you know, we're all that crazy stuff with Trump. I mean, when you see uh, the French officials say that that Joe Biden's administration basically the same thing as Trump just without the, the tweets, <laughs> like, that's kind of like, that's a, that's, a, that's, those are, those are harsh words. Now I'm not going to, and, and I, I look, I, I don't, I'm not a foreign policy expert. I don't want to be an armchair. I'm sure it's very hard to figure out how to get yourself out of a war that is deeply unpopular. Nobody wants uh, to be in. Uh, I guess the thing about it is, is more, is more the incompetence that you're talking about is the, is the idea that um, we just seem to, he and, and his team uh, seems to not know what they're doing. And it is on top of, is on top of a COVID resurgence. Uh, it is on top of this political infighting, a crisis at the border. Uh, and I, I, it all goes back to Tom's point about them understanding that they are, in, that they are making the, there is a dangerous opposition party that has showed that they would like to usurp uh, democracy. And, uh, and so they have to look they can't look like a clown car. And I don't want to, I don't, and I just, let me, I'll just say this too, as a, uh, the loyal opposition in some way, like I'm still rooting for Biden, but it is the tenor and the tone, you know, the, like the thing with France is just, they didn't talk to our allies, you know, like they didn't, they didn't, they didn't work with them and, and be upfront with them about what was happening. And I just want, uh, the Democrats to do better because we need them in this moment. So, Tom, um, let's talk about this Australia deal. Um, you know, it is it is being presented as very important for our posture vis-a-vis -vis China. But shouldn't our posture vis-a-vis -vis China be one where we have a united um, uh, group of allies who are all democracies uh, uh, singing from the same hymn book rather than fighting among ourselves? Wasn't there a way to do this without completely alienating the French? Yeah. And I mean, I don't, I actually don't think the policy is wrong. It's a good time to say, I don't speak for the Navy or the DOD. Um, but I think to understand a lot of what Biden's doing, first of all, you have to understand he approaches, I think anyway, that he approaches foreign policy like a job. And, and he may be thinking that he's correcting some of the 
um, errors of the Trump era, but I think he's also correcting some of the errors that he saw in the Obama in the Obama era. Um, I think of Biden as a guy who's like finally been made the principal of his old high school, and he's going to you know sort of fix things that have been ticking him off. Um, look, I think the policy is the right one. You're not going to create a gigantic anti-China coalition the way you did with the Soviet Union, in part because Europe has a lot of interests with China. And I think, you know, this kind of um, this policy in the Pacific with um, Australia and the UK, probably the right thing to do. That doesn't excuse this is just like the Afghanistan problem, the way Sarah was talking about it. That doesn't excuse the sort of clown car approach of, oh, I'm sorry, did we forget to call the French a, you know, an acknowledged Pacific power? Um, you know, there's a kind of minimal um, kind of competence issue. Um, and again, like Sarah, I'm in the loyal opposition. I'm rooting for Biden. I think I will take a hundred, you know, a year uh, of this kind of behavior over um, anything Donald Trump ever offered. And I and I think in the big scheme of things, the Australia business is mostly a gaffe rather than a, a policy disaster. I think we're making too much of it. And I, and I will say personally that I think the French overreacted and um, kind of, you know, went into swoony, dramatic, you know, recalling their ambassadors. I mean, that's just over the top as far as I'm concerned. Um, but I think that, that, you know, part of the thing here is that Biden is just focused on foreign policy as a job. And I think, for example, with Afghanistan, yeah, he didn't consult, you know, the, I, I was brutal on him about the pullout, but I also think that our allies are not going to suddenly reach the conclusion that America would be better off under Trump or the isolationist, you know, seditionist Republicans. Um, the other thing to understand about Biden is he's seen in some ways too much of this from the inside. I think with Afghanistan in particular, he said, I saw Every other president gets slow rolled on this, and that's not going to be me. And when I say get out right now, I mean get out right now. And I think a lot of the uh, blame for what happened in Afghanistan rests on the rest of the bureaucracy that finally encountered a president who, who was actually serious about this. Um, you know, I, I find it remarkable that the bureaucracy uh, and the policy um, world was not ready for a president who had told you for 20 years exactly what he was going to do the minute he got into power. And uh, and so, you know, I, I think we have to, I think Biden on this, I'm going to grade him a bit on a curve, but I also think, you know, Sarah's absolutely right. We expected a little more kind of prime or, or you know, at least on, on the face of it, more more competence from a, from a guy who spent, you know, 45 years doing this. Damon, um, if this were in a movie, um, we would have seen uh, the, the uh, behind-the-scenes meeting between Biden and Macron, where they talked about Macron's popularity rating at home and came to an agreement that this would be great. This will really boost Macron at home because, you know, against uh, Le Pen, because, you know, he can be all angry at the U.S. and recall his ambassador, and that'll make him really popular with the French people who like a good fight against the Americans. Uh, but uh, may maybe this isn't the movies. Um, <laughs> Uh, but uh, but what do you what do you think uh, just in general about uh, the president's posture in the world? Do you think that he's conveying a certain level of incompetence at this point, or no? 
Uh, marginally. I, I think probably I, I may be Biden's biggest and uh, strongest defender on this podcast on foreign policy. Um, I supported the Afghanistan pullout. Obviously, it did not, uh, it did not <laughs> go uh, as smoothly as one might have hoped. But I also agree with a lot of what Tom said about the way it turned out being uh, at least as much as anything a function of the bureaucracy and the military as a whole sort of not believing it was really going to happen and so dithering way too long and then leading to a big mess. Um, so I, that I, you know, by now, I, I frankly think the fact that we pulled out is what counts. How it happened uh, will become a triviality uh, in, in, the, in hindsight with time and is not the most important thing. Similarly, how the French stomped around and uh, made a stink about the uh, Australia-Britain-America deal uh, the defense pact uh, is not going to be the most important thing. Could it have been handled differently? I like to think so, but by the same token, I want to say in response, slightly pushing back on the way you framed this, Mona. Uh, mm -hmm. Not 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 to me, but I think to um, to Sarah, perhaps at the top of the segment. Um, I really don't see our role in the world as hand-holding all our allies and always somehow magically making it so that all the democracies agree and and confront our united opponent. I think that in, in China in this case. I really do think it might have been. There was no way to do this deal, which, by the way, I think is a very, very good one. I'm very much in favor of this defense pact. I think it's, it's, uh, it's very encouraging as far as I'm concerned about how to approach China. It might not have been possible to do it without really pissing off the French because they lost. They lost their sub deal. They it, it messed with their strategic hopes for the for the uh, Eastern Pacific in a way that they may not have been happy with. And maybe Biden and his team realized, you know, if we loop them in on this, they're going to try to blow it up. They're going to go public with it. They're going to make a stink before we're ready and all the ink is dry on the deal. And it's worth too much. And so we're going to deal with the blowback. And so for two weeks, they'll withdraw their ambassadors. Then Macron will come here and meet with Biden and they'll, they'll figure it out. I mean, my view is that the world is pretty complicated now. It is not the binary sort of Manichaean world of the Cold War, which I was in favor of and thought that fit the world at that time. We're in a world now where, uh, as uh, I think you noted, and maybe Sarah and Tom too, um, Europe doesn't view China in quite the way we do. That means NATO might not be the right means to take on China. It might mean that we need an Australian, British, and American alliance to do it more efficiently and effectively. Does that mean that we're now enemies with Europe or that NATO is finished? No, of course not. We still can work with Europe on issues of common interest. Uh, for instance, in checking Russia, 
we, you know, having NATO there is doing what it's done from the beginning and trying to check Russia, keep them in a box in Eastern and Central Europe as much as we can. And then there are other areas of the world in which we can work with European allies on various things, but maybe on this we couldn't. And so, yes, ideally, you don't want to have something blow up and, and uh, one of your closest allies to, to be very angry with you for a couple of weeks. But in the scheme of things, I think it will end up being seen as a relatively small blip. And the much bigger thing is this new defense pact, which I think, uh, you know, it's not going to get going for quite a while. There are many other things we need to do if we could somehow reverse time and not pull out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership so that China could uh, come in and kind of make fools of us by now attempting to join it, join it in our absence. Uh, that's probably Trump's biggest strategic, massive blunder of his presidency. That would be great if we could reverse time and do that. We can't. We got to figure something else out on trade and economics. But in general, the idea of the Anglo countries getting together, using nuclear-powered submarines to try to keep China where we want it in relation to um, Taiwan and the rest of the Eastern Pacific and South China Sea is a very, very good thing. So I, I'm willing to applaud Biden on that while cocking um, uh, an eyebrow a little bit about the, the, the kind of rocky rollout. Okay. Um, Bill, I was going to come to you anyway on the on the matter of the TPP that uh, Damon mentioned. Um, you know, w we had the opportunity there of um, creating a new free trade zone, a trade zone with uh, Pacific powers uh, that we would, have, where we would have done in Asia, what we had already done in the Americas, uh, largely and between U.S. and Europe. Um, to a large degree, namely um, ease trade restrictions, um, have rules of the road that required uh, mediation and, and all kinds of good things that led arguably to the greatest explosion of human wealth in the history of the world. Um, and, uh, and we failed. Now, Damon mentioned that Trump pulled out of it, which is true, but it was a bipartisan failure. I mean, during the 2016 campaign, both Hillary Clinton and Trump said they were opposed uh, to this to this pact. Uh, Hillary having first described it as um, the gold standard for for a trade pact. Um, so uh, do you do you agree with Damon's characterization? This is one of the worst geostrategic blunders of uh, recent times. I do. <laughs> but as you say, Mona, it was a bipartisan blunder. Uh, and the consequences of China's accession to the WTO uh, for our domestic economy and and society uh, were in some parts of the country catastrophic. The politics of trade changed in both political parties, and I say that with great regret. Uh, but let me let me say a word about the question that's been on the table in the past past few minutes, namely uh, Biden's foreign policy writ large. I think there's a big picture here, and let me just state it frankly: uh, what Biden is doing is guided by an organizing strategic concept. And that is that 
the 21st century will be determined not by what happens in the Middle East and not even by what happens in Europe, but what happens in the Pacific uh, and specifically in the now deepening struggle between uh, the world's two most powerful countries. One, a revisionist power on the rise, the other, a status quo power uh, that is determined to defend uh, the network of alliances and friendships that it has built up since the end of the Second World War. Uh, and everything I've seen out of this administration suggests to me that that is the guiding idea. One more point. The United States, for the first time in my lifetime, now finds itself embroiled in a two-front struggle against the world's two leading autocracies. This is not a comfortable position to be in. And the dynamic between these two fronts is to some extent zero sum. Uh, and the Europeans, if they are determined to pursue a policy of self-interest with regard to China, are going to find that that course of action will over time weaken support within the United States for the Europeans' front of the struggle. Uh, so there is a lot of rethinking that needs to be going on uh, on both sides of the Atlantic about how the struggle on these two fronts is to be coordinated. And we're seeing a lot of transitional uh, angst in the course of this great shift, but I think it's irreversible. Okay, we have now come to the part of the program where we do our highlights or lowlights of the week. Tom Nichols, let's start with you. Uh, well, the highlight of the week uh, for me has uh, been this non-event of the the Chapman memo we talked about. That you know, I'm this for me. The week has been um, that you know we had this, uh, and Sarah and you and I have already talked about it. That this thing is just sitting out there, and we're just going on with business as usual. So for me, that's maybe a low light. Um, it's been an otherwise unextraordinary week, except for the fact that I keep just kind of staring at this in disbelief uh, uh, that this is where we are. So maybe maybe it's a low light rather than a highlight. Yeah. Well, and it is a rebuke to all of the people who were constantly advising us not to worry about Trump. He was too incompetent right. to do anything seriously bad and on and on. All right. Damon. Uh, I, I want to uh, go a little lighter than I sometimes do. I, I often do low lights and uh, so forth, uh, kind of outrageous things. But I actually want to highlight a, a, a good essay uh, in the New York Times Magazine. And I was especially happy to see this appear in the New York Times Magazine. You, everyone will remember uh, about a year ago, maybe a little bit less, there was a big piece in the Times Magazine about a, a Princeton classics professor who had decided that uh, classics is so inextricably interwoven with white supremacy that he sort of wants to deconstruct the field from the inside. Well, 
um, the New York Times Magazine this weekend, so I'm actually slightly ahead of the curve. It will appear, I believe, in this weekend's New York Times Magazine, is an essay by uh, Thomas Chatterton Williams titled Searching for Plato with My Seven-Year-Old. Uh, it's about uh, a trip that uh, Williams took with uh, his seven-year-old daughter, uh, as the uh, subheadline says, to pay homage in person to the classical education that his father gave him. And so it's it's kind of a personal essay about uh, Williams's father and his love of Socrates and Plato and how uh, this helped to form Williams's mind and intellect and how he's trying to pass on wonderment about these great texts and their ideas uh, to his young daughter. And so it's a really a great celebration of humanism and, and kind of Western civilization in a way that we don't see that much anymore, but that I, I'm a big fan of. And so I recommend the essay to everybody. Me too. And I, you know, hate to have to point this out, but it is relevant that Thomas Chatterton Williams is multiracial in his uh, ethnic background. Yes, I'm um, glad you brought that up. I, so yeah. I didn't have to. <laughs> <laughs> but okay. yes, that is a bonus, I suppose. <laughs> yes. Okay, Sarah. Uh, so I'm going to go full suck up here and say that the best, the favorite thing that I read this week was actually your piece in the bulwark oh, thank you. about being a single <laughs> issue voter. Because sometimes someone else writes a piece and you're like, I should have written this piece. This should be my piece. I mean this. Um, and, and just the idea, because uh, I just, this is exactly how I feel, which is, uh, you know, there's this sort of anti-anti-Trump uh uh, trope out there that that those of us in the never trump circles have decided to become sort of never republicans uh which is i think sort of true in its practical application but it is not the reason is not that we've just said oh well we're we've decided we're democrats and we hate republicans now forever it's that we have uh, a litmus test the way some people might have one about abortion or something else which is uh if you lied about the election or you accommodate the lies about the election, the thing that is um, tearing at the fabric of democracy, that is undermining the, the great mechanism that we use uh, to keep our, our democracy going, which is voting, uh, creating an intimid intimidation around poll workers. If that's, if that's how you're operating, yeah, you're off my list. Um, and I don't care if you wear a cool sweater vest, uh, you know, Glenn Youngkin, and that you're a millionaire that's kind of you know, with a wink and a nod, a throwback uh, to the old days, um, there's no way I would vote for you uh, when you've gone out of your way to play footsie with the big lie. And so anyway, it's just a great piece. I like Sarah's answer better. Can I take that one too? <laughs> well, I just completely disagree. Well, no, obviously. <laughs> Thank you all. I, I appreciate that very, very much. Uh, and you can see it on thebulwark.com. Um, all right, uh, Bill Galston. I start with a deep sigh. Uh, <laughs> Kevin McCarthy is making Mitch McConnell look like a statesman. <laughs> uh, the this latest decision to whip his troops against the bipartisan infrastructure bill that was negotiated in good faith in both chambers across party lines is really inexcusable. You know, it is this year's repetition of the logic that prevented 
fundamental structural immigration reform from going forward in 2013. Uh, if this is the way leaders of parties behave, how can we expect the rank and file to do what many of them believe needs to be done? Uh, I am just, I am just heartsick at the prospect that a genuine demonstration of how the system should work may fall prey to this kind of cynical, myopic partisanship. Now let me tell you what I really think about that. <laughs> yeah, don't sugarcoat it, Bill. <laughs> All right. Um, I would like to praise uh, a piece that appeared in The Atlantic uh, called What Happened to American Childhood? And uh, the subhead is too many kids are showing worrying signs of fragility from a very young age. And it's by Kate Julian. Highly recommend it. Very, very wise, insightful article. She gives examples of things that parents are doing um, that, in, that increase their children's anxiety, even when they're trying to do the opposite. And as somebody who raised three children, I can say I, you know, I didn't make many of the mistakes that are listed, but I made some of them. And, uh, and it's easy to fall into that pattern of, you know, like she gives examples of parents who cut their kids meat for them until they're, you know, they're pretty old because the child has a unnatural fear of, of knives. And it goes on with lots of examples. And you can sort of see why parents get sucked into this pattern of trying to uh, ease the world for their children, but she she draws some larger social um, uh, conclusions about this, and you know that parenting in America has become preparing the road for the child rather than the child for the road, as that old Chinese saying has it. And uh, it's it's very very interesting. I highly recommend it, especially to any of our listeners who have children or grandchildren. Uh, with that, I would like to thank our guests, Tom Nichols and Sarah Longwell, for sitting in. Uh, really great to have you, and we will return next week as every week.